Thank you all for being here. Um, thank you for having me. Ted, thank you. Monica, um, Michael um, Summers, right there. The year before when Monica invited me, I was on leave in Paris at the time, and thank you for persisting and having me this year. But I have to admit that, um, and it, I didn't thank the Committee on Social Theory. Um, I have to admit I had a morning that was really perplexing and troubling um, because there are so many things that I want to be able to respond to from students and faculty and wonderful questions people ask me about so many different parts of my work. And originally I was going to give this paper on the politics of sentiment, which I am going to give in the end. Then I told Ted a day and a half ago, no, I better give the introduction to the book of which this is a part, so that people will have a sense of the arc of what this new project is, which is not finished, and it is not all wrapped up, and I love giving things when they're not wrapped up at all. Um, and then, after discussion this morning, I realized I better go back to the one on sentiment. Um, so, I'm not gonna do either of those choices. Um, what I thought I would do, and this is gonna be difficult because I'm not going to get through this. It's too long anyway, and you're all probably tired on a Friday. But I'm going to try to give you just a very short introduction to the book, and then go into that other piece, just so you can get some sense. And it's called Interior Frontiers, Concept Work on Rough Colonial Ground. And the rough ground is a reference to Wittgenstein's amazing um, statement. Um, he says, we have got onto slippery ground where there is no friction. And in certain sense, the conditions are ideal. But also, just because of that, we are unable to walk. We want to walk, so we need friction. Back to the rough ground. That's kind of the dilemma I'm trying to work with. This book is, in some ways, if I could get hold of it, is about the metrics of inequality. And it's about the metrics of inequality. Lots of people write about inequalities. And I've been writing about inequalities for most of my career in some form. Um, but this is about some of those that are kind of below the radar of perception as a metric or a measure of worth. And that's what interests me, all of these other modalities that are taken as benign what I call the politics of comparison, and how things are made commensurable or not. Um, the labor of forgetting, do we ever really forget? Or do we know and not know, always at the same time? Um, sentiments, not the brash ones of a trunk, but the ones that injure and damage in all kinds of other ways. Um, and interior frontiers, these borders that are not quite open, not quite closed, that are frontiers towards others that are always receding back and away from letting others in, that occupy various scales. Um, so I start the introduction this way. Colonialisms stamp themselves into bodies and minds, in the creases of skin, in the pores of flesh. As Simone Weil and Franz Fanon 
have insisted those who imagine to have escaped that inscription fool themselves, especially the well-meaning, good-hearted ones, the unreflected among us who never wanted them to be colonized, but profited and continued to profit nonetheless. As beneficiaries, subsidizing is the stock and trade of well-meaning white folk, a set of practices renewed at every turn. Philanthropy and humanitarianism are the goods purlied in the process of feeling good about feeling bad, as Sarah Ahmad says in another form. While good folk silently endorse camps of containment, segregated housing, gated space, and ever more lethal police tactics to ostensibly render sensitive quarters, as in the French, more secure and safe. Empire is a racial emporium, stacked with commodities and currencies of inequality. Infrastructures that are unequally distributed, resources that are generously allotted to some, meted out meagerly, if at all, to others. Outfitted with measures of cultural capital that are both white-defined and white-infested, assuring blocked access. Those physically and psychically damaged by colonial conditions are occasionally acknowledged and treated. Others who do not count among the counted are subject to forms of duress that go unregistered, unalleviated, and insistently ignored. In this conjuncture, in this brutally divisive, ultra-liberal and ultra-conservative moment, liberals loudly condemn colonialisms in the abstract as injustices past and done with. Conservatives deem them irrelevant, a belabored, and irritating distraction, and besides the contemporary point. And let there be no mistake, right-wing parties, the Front National in France, Denmark's People's Party, and Gert Wilders in the Netherlands, and the US's white supremacist contingency are no longer, as we so often, and I was among them, wanted to claim the major purveyors and they never really were. Colonial histories and their contemporary presence are squarely placed off the social map, as is race for a widespread population that's not confined just to the extreme, who claim that being really European, American, and white is their historical property and coveted possession, entitling them to put up trespassing signs for those who do not and can never comply with their fabricated and opaque proprietary requirements. This is a book in part then about colonial conditions, their effects and the politics of their conceptual grammars. But in many ways it's not, and that's why it's such a difficult book for me. Many of these chapters that first emerge out of working in the interstices of colonial archives and on the paper trails of imperial governance Splay out further than a colonial landscape proper. Take on renewed currency and relevance on a broader contemporary terrain. Their temporal zone, and this is really important that I started bringing up in the last book, Duress, stretch across what might be considered past and present, but largely refuse that designation, that cutoff as past, present, future. It's a refusal of that hovering between what is not over, but rendered forgettable, 
and what is disregarded and poignantly present. But what's striking today, and perhaps more striking, I think, than it has been, and we can discuss it, has been before, is how resonant and pervasive colonial effects are on a wider scale, as indeed part of and descriptive of a planetary phenomena, an intensification and shift in the conditions of inequality, and an ever more effective inoculation to whether they matter. The world today is hardly a mimetic version of what high imperialism looked like in the late 19th or 20th century. I'm not in any way, if anything, I'm just claiming exactly the opposite. This is an issue I addressed in an earlier publication, Duress, Imperial Durabilities in Our Times. Nor is it to argue that all the entailments of living in and on the borderlands of a colonial habitus are now operative. The well-heeled liberal order publicly abhors racism, sexism, and torture. Dispossession is ethically corrupt. Segregation, apartheid, has supposedly had their ugly day. The rule of law is objective and nonpartisan. The imperial rule of law was violently not. Still, I think there's something uncanny in the dark underside of the global economy and the racially inflected politics of the street, of police surveillance, and the depth of inequalities in resources, political rights, clean air, health care, what all of the geographies, geographers know and study so well, and what so differently make up people's everyday. These colonial disparities of rights and resources, of which I've written about for decades, have palpable resonance here and now. This should not be surprising. Some of these contemporary disparities have direct imperial ideologies rooted in the displacements and deprivation of a longer durée. Sometimes they are as clear as in the relationship between immigration and imperial formations, or the reiterative fear of a deluge of refugees slash migrants slash others storming Europe and the imperial fear of barbarians at the gate. Some forms are so steeped in more commonly shared privations that their colonial watermark is hard to decipher. And that's one of the issues I've tried to deal with in a lot of the things I've been writing over the years, is how that, that, that colonial watermark is muted and is much more violent than just a watermark. For long, I've held in high analytic and political regard the impulse not to dwell on the catastrophic, most obvious sites of colonial violence, but in the damaging gestures, disdaining habits, and affronts that prepare the ground for disaster, sometimes before these conditions are given a name. In this respect, I hold with Sadia Hartman's invocation, I quote, to look elsewhere and consider those scenes in which terror can hardly be discerned thereby illuminating the terror of the mundane and quotidian, rather than exploit the shocking spectacle." Unquote. Hartman's reference is to the violence of slavery. Mine is to the visceral violence of forms of governance that permeate microecologies and racialized persons frozen in colonial histories that assault and refuse to tap, detach from their everyday lives. This volume's essays, I knew this was going to take too long, but you know, I'll get to the other. These volume's essays take direct and oblique paths through these issues. because so not, it's, not, it's not a unity. It's, it's, they're actually pretty disparate, what 
and love if we have time later for me to read you the nine chapters that are part of it. Um, I can't do it now. <laughs> they look to sites of potential blockage and possibility, dispositions and practices that may enable or get in the way, as a series of engagements with history as renegade politics and renegade histories of the present. Concept work on rough ground dissuades the retreat to certitudes and the fictive assurance of smooth passage. In distinct registers, then, these essays broach a set of key concepts and their social etymologies. They are, if nothing else, an organic response to the dissensions of our times, a response to some of the seemingly benign forms in which power articulates with our conditions of life and imposes its strictures upon us. I take to heart, and this is a quote from Nietzsche that, that has just always chilled me. I take to heart here Nietzsche's warning about the strength it takes, I quote, to be able to live and to forget the extent to which to live and to be unjust is one and the same thing. So that's the quote that informs the chapter on the labor of forgetting. It is this that motivates chapter four. I didn't realize I wrote it right. In the labor of forgetting, or what we might call these steps toward a social ecology of disregard. There I argue that there is sometimes hard labor in turning away from the injustices in which we participate and the inequalities in which we live. But sometimes we are so well groomed and habituated to turn away, there is little intentionality needed in doing so. It is in these lower recesses of subordinating practices, and I think that line captures in a sense what I'm trying to locate, these lower recesses of subordinating practices, both in their verbal and gestural economy, in which these damages thrive and where these essays uneasily rest. So that's what I wanted to just give you was a sense of where I'm going and some of what I'm trying to get to. For those of us who work in the historical and contemporary interests of knowledge and power, how we identify what counts as the former and shapes the attributes of the latter and vice versa is a domain of exploding interest, of new research, of new and renewed debates. So much so that one might think that the murky nexus of knowing and inciting, of naming and shaming, of classifying and enraging, has not been as profoundly on the agenda in the study of knowledge before. I'm thinking here of how sentiment slash emotion slash feeling, I'm refusing right now to distinguish among them for very good reason, um, on our conceptual figure, on our conceptual and political radars, what they tell us about social inequalities, the epistemics on which sentiments are imagined to depend, and what work we imagine we do to make and mark the distinctions among what Ian Hacking would once call humankind. If the ubiquity of the affective turn in the human sciences is new to some, attentiveness in history, philosophy, and political theory to the operative working of emotion is certainly not. 
long before engagement with the social coordinates of sentiment or affect theory going nuts, before it took hold in European and US universities, a range of diverse advocates carved out an effective terrain in innovative work that transgressed disciplines and the conventional distinctions between reason and the emotions that were at their core. Challenging the conceit of an objective empiricism on which those fields of knowledge production were imagined to be based were too many people to name. I'm not going to go through them. Arlie Hochschild, which many people know. Carolyn Stephen in sociology and history. Martha Nussbaum. Stephen Shapin in philosophy and history of science. William Miller on disgust. Don Herzog in law. Catherine Lutz and Lega Code in anthropology. We're going back to early 80s, um, but also much earlier. Yet it is not sure, and this is the point that I'm trying to make in this paper, that repleteness is the case, in part because some of the key forms in which affect figures still remain in the shadows, I think, of our analytic reach. For affect provides at once the font of judgment, deliberation, and subterranean critique, a mode of politics, caustic and couched, that in Jim Scott's terms and his words, dare not speak its name. The phrase infrapolitics, Jim Scott's with reference to the creative subterfuges of the disenfranchised. But my thought of infrapolitics taps another subjacent vein. Infrapolitics is where the political is personal, where sentiment damages and defies, discriminates and demands. I start from the observation, and it may seem banal at this point, you know, after the Kavanaugh, what's going on, but that's not exactly the sort of sentiment that I'm thinking of. But I do need a little water, I'm sorry. I start from the observation that sentience, sensibility, and sentiments constitute foundational features of regimes of truth. That right there is, for some, absolutely an impossible claim. Sometimes acknowledged more often than not. These grids of sensibility are the basis on which trust is meted out. Anyone who's I'm familiar with Stephen Chapin's amazing book, The Social History of Truth, basically argues that truths are never based on any kind of empiricism, but on the kind of, of cultural competence and civilities that certain gentlemen demonstrated. Death sentences are conferred. Durations of imprisonment are determined and guilt is proven, and this comes up in the end of this paper. These grids of sensibility mark lives inequitably enriched, subjecthoods diminished or unmade. And attention to emotions, if attention to emotions saturates the social sciences, there are in the contrary, and curiously, a profusion of too many domains in which the assessment of feeling remains as though unproblematic. And those are the ones that I've been trying to identify. For my purposes here, I'm choosing three where assessments of feeling figure centrally. One, the affective obsessions of colonial governance. Two, law and the demand for remorse and her remorse figures in um, assigning uh, blame. And three, the racial politics of intuition. Each of these domains call upon some combination of gut feeling and taste, recognized in unrecognized ways of intuitively judging value 
and the value of others. Each, as we shall see, cultivate <coughs> sensory regimes of exclusion in which distaste and disgust are viscerally wedged, hovering in the corridors of both the visible and the unseen, the palpable and the recessed, intuition and the feelings prescribed are dense transfer points of power, as Foucault would have it with respect to sexuality, never said it with respect to sentiment, of privilege and of privation in themselves. Just to be clear, I'm not thinking here of the high crescendo of the emotional performances that scream for attention. Think Trump, Jean-Marie and Marine Le Pen, uh, Herb Wilders, but the quieter, lowercase sentiments that act as judgments of a different intensity, a promise of knowledge of what is hidden, be that a violent intent, as with the Department of Homeland Security and its multi-million dollar project on violent intent, or to identify moral character. But let me backtrack for a moment and begin elsewhere. In 2016, the Oxford English Dictionary endowed post-truth as the word of the year, defining it as, I quote, denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion, unquote. Well, those of us who dredge in imperial archives to study racism's past and present can easily contest the historical myopia of that claim. Those well-versed in the history of political theory could draw on 17th century philosophy with its insistence that the art of governance required knowing not only oneself, but knowing oneself as part of the art of knowing men. It was in working some 30 years ago with colonial archives of the late 19th and 20th century in the Netherlands Indies when I first became struck by the affective registers of staid colonial bureaucratic, unbelievably tedious documents with a grammar of sentiments. And we can talk about this, where they appear on the edges, in marginalia, in the way in which, in which the script is written in hard, in, 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 with a hard, hardened pen with a grammar of sentiments that was once couched and glaring, muted and displayed in that space. This was an imperial project possessed by the anxious, anticipatory, epistemic labor, and I call it epistemic labor, because it's a way how you know what you know and how you imagine you think you know what you think you know. The epistemic labor of discerning how to know those sensibilities of its own agents, whether they were going to be subversive and subjects. Those affective dispositions that were imagined to bolster or threaten the security regimes of colonial rule. Um, and for me, this is an opening to really rethink the way IR has dealt with security regimes, that they missed the boat on so much of it, because they only work at a certain scale, in a certain way, with a certain definition of security, without really how much it was very, very close to the bone and very close to the home. It was also an imperial project like so many others then and now, operating only partially in an immediate present, but as often in this future, conditional, fearful tense. Here was an order of things in which the very notion of security was responsive to and defined by failed and successful efforts to harness fear, to cultivate moral distaste and to make sure that whites were groomed 
to have those distastes, to instill trust in authority and distrust of those who might, would, could be imagined to defy its order and prescriptions for control. Such features, as we know, are vividly active in the preemptive violences and vectors of fear and insecurity nourished by security regimes today. And that's been part of the genealogy that I've been working on. Other sentiments make their appearance in the Imperial Archive in its stage scenes. Compassion and sympathy were both integral, as they again are, to empire's defensive and protective humanitarian measures. Under colonial conditions, sensibilities were arduously monitored, debated, racially assessed, among both those colonized agents and colonized considered to display misplaced arrogance or attachments, impatient insolence, just the words themselves, just the appearance of those words is an index, right, of what kind of grammar is being constructed. How do you become insolent? You're only insolent if the expectation is that you have to stay in your place. There, there is nothing without, there's no insolence without hierarchy. Over zealous sympathies for the other, too obvious to stain or discuss. A real gentleman only shows it in mild mannered ways. Children were a flashpoint of a sentimental education, subjects to be groomed with educated desires, whether it be European children considered too attached to the taste and touch of their native nursemaids, or mixed Indo children who embodied the unacknowledged knowing that those nursemaids were sometimes really their mothers. Within this intensely racialized environment, sentiments were understood as dangerous political forces in themselves. So how did we get to a place in colonial studies and all of imperial historiography that absolutely set it aside? Nor were they at a distant pole from the cold reason of state policies. But what I have been arguing for some years as one of reason's constitutive elements. So I'm not contrasting reason and passion at all, but arguing that these make up the political rationalities that Foucault argues we attend to. Attending then to the political force of affect opens to and locates the technologies of governance with precision, different kind of precision, and the sites of their very making. Sensibility and sentiment are not outside conceptual framing, but the very ballast of political concept formation. This is a crucial methodological point. For here I take sentiments as relational measures of comparative worth and value. That is my basic definition. That if you can stick with that definition, you methodologically open to so many other spaces. They, are not, they not only instantiate, and this is crucial too, prior relations of unequal worth, they show you afterwards, oh, she treated him badly, but he was already considered low, but they're productive of that. They actually help produce those levels of inequality themselves. They are performative and productive. By designating who is high and low, the attribution of impertinence Shame, disgust, and contempt do some of that work. They mark who should act subordinately to whom and who is eligible to transgress that normative assignment. So when you can transgress it, already is a marker of where you stand. 
They mark who is effectively beholden and who is not, tapping into unspoken breaches of social and sexual contracts and their hidden costs. They demarcate who can pity, who can be pitied, with a requisite distance affirming safety for the pity, as Luke Poltansky underscores in his wonderful work on distant suffering and the politics of pity. And as Hannah Arendt put it, a loquacious pity secures its heartfelt and contemptuous grammar. So she argues that pity is really noise. And in her estimation, compassion is much wider. I don't exactly agree with that, but that's part She's helped us in many ways. It is a relational measure, first of all. I think it's a really important thing to think about that sentiment isn't a thing. Right? It's not just sitting out there itself and then it's applied. It's a relational measure that it installs a form of appraisal and deliberative assessment. Politically, this deliberative feature is key. It may be about where one stands in relationship to others, the desert or lack of desert with which one is treated, looked at, touched, or physically avoided, spoken to, and assessed. Robert Solomon's insight that emotions are judgments in the plural, that is, there's not a one-to-one, -one, this emotion is this judgment, is not that emotions are the effect of prior judgments alone, though they may be. Rather, it is the very enactment of the emotion that the assessment is inscribed, actually, in that very feeling itself. It's not that you got a rational judgment back here and then you showed this emotion out there. Such a treatment gives something like jealousy, not the status of a mean-spirited, petty reaction. It's women, of course, it's gender. That which does not count as information at all, but rather information with political balance. That which does on the cusp of a right denied, the quiver of a claim. So to think of jealousy in an entirely different kind of way. The this feature of embodied judgment is not unlike Aristotle's formulation of anger. For what he described is not the flash of non-containment, which is how we often think of anger. Rather, the affective perception that points to, and it's amazing that Aristotle says this, and is animated by an offense. Anger is tied against the assumed equality of a relationship and the stronger truth of disparity. I think we could just stop there, and I could go home right there on Aristotle. Mm -hmm. um, how you show that, that assumed equality of a relationship and the stronger truth of disparity. Put more boldly, if I can, might we not consider emotions as emphatic or incipient assertions of much more than information, but rather an evaluative veridiction, in Foucault's sense of a veridiction, and a verdict that is information, not information, but it is information, a verdict that is being made at that moment. This is not the claim that the emotional out outbursts tells the truth of the self. That's not what I'm arguing. Nor is it to embrace the Freudian understanding that most repressed emotion is the real. 
and has the ultimate truth-telling properties and truth-exposing function. Rather, it is to argue that emotion may be a veridiction about the very terms of a relationship with power, which is why I'm interested in it. About the lower recesses of subordination, that term I used earlier, a testing ground of sorts with almost a juridical inflection. For in the folds of a disagreement about how one should be treated is a contested judgment of my worth, of your worth of what our work is vis-a-vis one another. A scene that dramatizes an order of truth. At issue then is not only the disdain expressed, but what assertion of the right to show that disdain, right, says about the inequality of that relationship. It's not just the thing, it's who can show that where with impunity. And a broader structured inequality in which it is sanctioned and lodged. Thus, the aboutness of emotions is not just about an object, but an aboutness that is a relationality, what relations are about. Emotions are not freestanding things, eruptive byproducts of thought, momentary intrusions. I mean, these are all quotes. That's how they're being considered, momentary intrusions, by accretions of stored deliberation. What I call them part of a calculus of relational estimation, demonstrative interpretive labor in themselves. For sentiments may build on prior beliefs, or those beliefs may be forged as with indignation and the subjacent recognition of one's treatment as unworthy. Such a treatment would do away with any notion of singular judgments attached to any singular one, for envy can fold into desire, conflating as Sian guy argues in ugly feelings the wishing to be and wishing to have. Those two are really interesting. That one always assumes that wanting to have is that I want to be like you. I want to have it. I don't want to be you. Humiliations can morph into fury. Registering the unjust or turn to self-loathing and silence. Shame may be refitted as pride, as with gay pride, with pride not canceling out shame, but fueled and transformed by it. And disdain may manifest in a nonverbal register, pleasurable and satisfying at another's cost. Think the seemingly innocuous shrug of disdain, so diminishing of the one on whom it is conferred that it bleeds into unacknowledged abuse. Or we might look to longing and nostalgia for what one has never been afforded, wedded to revulsion and disgust, as Carolyn Steedman does amazingly, for those of you who know Landscape for a Good Woman, you read it, you can read it, where the yearning for the cut, I mean, she does this entire rethinking of class analysis throughout it. That's really extraordinary. And it's autobiographical. Where the yearning for the cut of a dress, the ample yardage that some can afford, and the longing it instills in those who could not. Both yearning and yardage contrast, as she argues, the pull of a straightened skirt that prevents one to mount a bus with grace. This is the 1940s she's talking about. And once the trivial, totally trivial, why do you all want to hear it in geography and anthropology? Unmarked markers of disparities of a class deprived of opportunity. Steedman calls on her mother's words to pin this sense of things, as she calls it, not being really fair, 
out on the class margins where one is rendered envious and graceless. It's a societal foothold denied to one who always and never really feels to belong. Alienation is a concept of Marxism and Freud hardly does enough of that work. Alienation just, just stops way before we get to what is made up of, what its constituent features are. Freighted with different degrees of presence and intensity, sentiment dissolves as the thing emerging in cold light as a process of minute calibrations whose opacities may not adequately yield to ready political recognition. And that's that space. So you immediately can't say, what, they're too jealous that it's political? What is that term that makes something activated, mobilized as a political act? Assessments of affect in the law is precisely where I began work on racial categories some 30 years ago, on how colonial authorities imagined they could measure what they could not know. The display and distribution of sentiment was absolutely key to judgments of racialized essence and character. Their ascription of a form of, a form of judgment and indictment in itself. An issue, the one that really stuck with me been with me for 30 years, was an 1884 document stipulating, a legal document, that what it took for a native to be granted the status of European equivalents was evidence that the person, I quote, no longer feel at home in their native being. That's an extraordinary sentence in a legal document. I remember my shock was as much at what was left unsaid in the arrogance of an assumed capacity to describe how one feels and how to make that assessment that someone didn't feel at home in their native being. Who would be charged and qualified to do so? And what would ever count as enough proof that someone was distanced? And, and it's what our citizenship laws are based on, too. Right? You have to show a distance from various parts of who you are. Common treatments of sentiments. How are we doing on time? I'm going to go to the section on remorse that I think is, for me, a demonstration of some of the issues at hand. How much time do I have? Three minutes? Ten? Ten? <laughs> What? Um, yeah, we'll go three and then I'll take we'll go. Okay. In Michel Foucault's 1981 lectures, he called a vowel, the thorn, the splinter, the wound, the vanishing point, the breach in the entire penal system. For it demands confession, not only of what a person did, but who he or she is, or who or she must be, in order to have done what they did. Avowal may be the law's linchpin, but remorse and remorselessness expose the recurring breach and the penal and legal systems as such. And remember, that's not supposed to be the, the way the law is enacted. Evaluation of remorse might be considered one of the most damaging epistemological aporia with which the law must reckon, in part because it is calibrated in such a variant and minute if unspoken ways. In a striking essay on remorse and demeanor in the courtroom, lawyer and professor of law Susan Bandis 
looks at the consequences of misinterpretation, condemning a justice system that relegates remorse as a non-issue. So basically, it's not, it's not dealt with formally anywhere. As she argued, the role in the criminal justice system has a rich literature, the role of remorse. But how remorse can be evaluated has not. As every etymological entry and discussion of remorse rehearses, the notion derives from the verb, mordeta, to bite, and from the Latin, remor, to bite again. It is defined as the, the painful regret of a wrongdoing, the painful regret of a, of a wrongdoing, a sense of deep regret and guilt for some misdeed. If the subject of remorse is unevenly present, remorselessness garners far less attention. It's a striking omission, for remorselessness is something different altogether than remorse, and it's not its opposite. To be without remorse is considered more than a negative effect, affect. Rather, it is considered a, with a different salience and indexical weight. Remorselessness is converted seamlessly into another sort of truth. It is a condition of being, a disposition that sticks to the person, not the deed. It is the absence of an emotion when one should have one. It is taken as an incapacity of feeling that reflects not the act, but the quality of the person that exceeds the act. And unlike remorse, which is in contemporary usage is no longer tied to the earlier sense of compassion and pity, a person without remorse is still defined as one who knows neither compassion, pity, nor compunction. The sense of remorselessness somehow adheres to the negative of remorse's earlier definition. Whatever the indictment may be for a misdeed, remorselessness doubles the indictment again. If remorse is a promise to act in the future and feel, because that's what it is, you've got your remorse, and then you're going to be a better citizen, and you're going to be part of society in a particular way, remorselessness is deemed to verify something else. It is not and cannot be the opposite of remorse. It is just, it is not just its absence. In a standard Webster, Webster dictionary, the adjective remorseless is defined by being merciless, and relentless, first of all. The various thesaurus offer it as a synonym for a broader range of recalcitrant, hardened dispositions, obstinacy, incompliance, obduracy, implacability, and cruelty. Remorse, on the contrary, is endowed with ethical approval, whereas a remorseless person is outside the pale of societal norms and punished more severely on multiple counts, which is where I'm getting. In the case of evidence of remorselessness or the intuitively assessed whiff of it, punishment may be for a lack of submission to the normative demands of the law, for being inept or incapable of showing contrition in the requisite forms that make the contrition legible, or for remaining non-compliant to society's moral demands. The law wants remorse demonstrated vis-a-vis -a, -vis a prior act. But the law also wants a show of shame before oneself. The Levinasian evidence that one has not fled from oneself, a sign of redeemed character. 
and the DSM-4, the lot of remorse, is one of the key diagnostics of psychopathic behavior. It's a risk factor for future violence and evidence of, I quote, an antisocial personality disorder. The moral condemnation of remorselessness is intense and pervasive in and out of the legal system, despite the fact of numerous studies finding no correlation between it and the propensity for future violence. But it's always associated. This person is going to do it again. Still, it remains a firm justification for giving more severe sentences to those unable or unwilling to show remorse in the forms it is expected to be displayed. Demonstration and recognition of remorse, or the lack thereof, mark the difference between a commuted death sentence versus one racially, right, righteously enforced. Remorseful defendants receive much lighter sentences than those judged to be without remorse. Studies of how judges and jurors identify remorse are chilling. As Bandus argues, the role of remorse in the legal system remains unresolved. It's a poorly formulated concept at the center of the legal system. And it's an affect that is absolutely crucial for us to understand. Poorly formulated concept lacking clarity and uniformity. Some judges take greater levels of detail in verbal statements to indicate greater levels of sincerity. Greater levels of detail to indicate greater levels. Others depend on a gestural economy where, quote, breaking down, being overwhelmed, not paying attention, of being distant are telling cues. This is extraordinary. More disturbing, the verdict on remorse is that it allows us to see and this is the argument over and over. Deep character. This is almost verbatim colonial, colonial lexicon. With demeanor serving as the measure of candor and credibility. Decisions about life are at stake. In capital cases, remorseful, remorsefulness is the crucial, remorselessness is the crucial factor in determining whether the defendant is sentenced to death more restrictive prison conditions and denial of parole, pardon, or clemency follow the same logic. Remorse, unlike some other sentiments that garner more agreed upon recognizable measures, is one whose truth value remains opaque. It is where theory of mind, those of you who are familiar in psychology with the notion of theory of mind, is assumed to be that that is where you, you, you think you know what someone, people who are artistic supposedly don't have theory of mind. Um, it's where theory of mind is assumed to be transparent and fails the test. In such a system of standards, young men of color are most vulnerable to its quixotic and abusive logic. In juvenile court, not showing remorse, something many youth never show, regardless of race, can lead to a felony charge and transfer to an adult court. By what logic? But it is race which is the critical factor in whether a death penalty is administered or not. In the moral economy of remorse, countless studies show that black defendants are always viewed as more likely to repeat a crime, regardless of the crime in question, in part because the evidence of remorse is both an anticipatory judgment and an evaluative 
affective disposition that tells the truth of an irreparable flaw in one's deep character. Compassion is to those undeserving of suffering, while those remorseless are treated as insufficiently suffering and thus deserving of harsher treatments. I'm almost done. On the face of it, remorselessness has no explicit political balance. But it figures in a moral economy counting as a charge against those not deemed to inhabit a moral habitus that is our, our own. It does so, I would hazard, in an, in an unspoken political economy as well. For what if we look at remorselessness in another way? Among those who see the life conditions of privation committed against them as unjust and refuse remorse. I was writing this when I was sitting in, um, uh, in a law cases um, against 20 men who were accused of being terrorists, uh, Islamic Jihad terrorists in Paris, um, and were without remorse. Not as a sign of immorality, but an appraisal of a subject, a set of judgments in another moral universe, and perhaps the truth in itself, a form of what Foucault and ancient Greeks would call parisia, that is, fearless speech that adheres to some of the basic requirements of the ancient Greek definition of truth, spoken in the agora, in the public declaration, the courtroom, a rejection of a certain authority of the state and its penal system, and an act that puts one at mortal risk and subject to death. And those are the three criteria of Phasia in ancient Greece. Remorselessness returns us not to the criminal deed, but to the deep character of one whose assault on the normative requirement to genuinely feel or feign to feel remorse could be a political motive in itself. Thank you for your patience.